You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 3, given in Dornach on the 6th of January, 1924. I spoke to you yesterday of the special form in which the results of research in the realm of spiritual knowledge were communicated in the Middle Ages. This form was, so to speak, the last experience vouchsafed to humanity before a door was shut for the evolution of the human spirit, a door that had been open for many centuries and had given entrance by way of natural gift and faculty into the spiritual world. The door was shut when the time came for humanity so far as its instinctive faculties were concerned to be placed outside the kingdom of the divine spiritual will that had been controlling us. From that time forward we had to find our own inmost being, in our own will, the possibility to evolve conscious freedom in the soul. But all such momentous evolutionary progress takes place slowly, step by step. And it also happened that the experience that had been attained by the neophytes when their teacher led them up into the etheric heights and down into the deep clefts of the earth, an experience that was even in those times no longer possible in the form it had taken in the ancient mysteries. We can trace how this experience that was directly connecting the neophytes with nature, though not with nature on the earth's surface, began now to come to humanity in a different, in a more unconscious way. Think for a moment how it was with those who were searching for knowledge about the year 1200 and on through the following century. They would hear tell of how, only a short time before, neophytes had still been able to find a teacher like the one of whom we were speaking yesterday. They themselves, however, were now being directed to thought, to human thinking, as the means of attaining knowledge. And in the succeeding years of the Middle Ages, we can see this thinking developing and spreading, asserting itself in a truly impressive manner. It sets out on new paths with zeal, with sincere and wholehearted devotion, and the paths are followed by large circles of those seeking knowledge. At the same time, what may truly be called spiritual science, knowledge of the Spirit, continued, and after a few centuries we come to the time that saw the rise of Rosicrucianism. That event is connected with the change that took place regarding humanity in the whole spiritual world. I can best describe the change by giving you once again a picture. Mysteries in the old sense of the word were no longer possible in this time. There were, however, those who yearned for knowledge in the sense of the ancient mysteries, and such persons experienced severe psychic conflicts. 
when they heard how in the past neophytes had been led up to mountain tops and down into deep clefts of the earth, and they made great efforts, exerting themselves inwardly in all sorts of ways, hoping thereby to rouse the soul within them, that it might yet find the way. And whoever is able to see such things can find in those times, as we have said, not places of the mysteries, but gatherings of those seeking knowledge, who met together in an atmosphere warmed through and through with a glow of genuine piety. What appears later as Rosicrucianism, sound and genuine Rosicrucianism, as well as the degenerate and charlatan varieties, is to be traced back to persons who came together in this simple way and sought so to temper their souls that it might still be possible for genuine spiritual knowledge to be found again on earth. In such a gathering, one that took place in quite unpretentious surroundings, just the simple living room of a kind of manor house, a few persons once met who, through certain exercises done in common by them all, exercises half thoughtful and meditative in character, half of the nature of prayer, had developed a mystical mood in which all shared. It was the same mystical mood of soul that was cultivated in later times by the so-called, quote, brethren of the common life, close quote, and later still by the followers of Comenius and by many other brotherhoods. And in the small circle of which I am telling, it showed itself with a peculiar intensity. While these few men were gathered together in this intense mystical atmosphere of soul, making devotion, so to say, of their ordinary consciousness, of their whole intellect, it happened that a being came to them, not a being of flesh and blood, like the teacher whom the earlier pupil met, and who led him up the mountain and down into the clefts of the earth, but a being who is able to appear in this little company only in an etheric body. It revealed itself, however, as the same being who had guided the neophyte about the year 1200. It was now in the post-mortem state. It descended to this small circle from the spiritual world. They had attracted it by the mood of soul that prevailed in them, mystical, meditative, pious. My dear friends, in order that no misunderstanding should arise, let me emphasize expressly that there is no question of any sort of mediumistic power here. The little company who were gathered would have looked upon any use or any sanctioning of mediumistic powers as deeply sinful. They would have been led to do so by certain widely accepted ideas belonging to old and honored traditions. Particularly in those very communities which I am describing, mediumship and all that is related to it was regarded not merely as harmful, but sinful. And that was for the following reason. These individuals knew that mediumship goes together with the peculiar constitution of the physical body. They knew it is the physical body that gives to the medium their spiritual powers. But they looked upon the physical body as fallen, and messages that came by the help of mediumship they could only regard as acquired under all circumstances by the help of aramonic and luciferic powers. 
In the times of which we are speaking, all this was still clearly and exactly known. Therefore we should not think of anything mediumistic in this connection. All was in the mood of mysticism and meditation, and in that alone. And it was the enhancing and strengthening of this mood through fellowship of soul that, so to speak, enchanted into the circle, but of its own free will, that disembodied human being who was purely spiritual and yet at the same time human. And now the being spoke to them in a deeply solemn manner, quote, You are not prepared for my appearance. I am among you discarnate, without physical body, since a time has come when for a short period of earth existence the initiates of olden times are unable to appear in a physical body. The time will come again when they can do so, when the Michaelic Regency begins. I am come to reveal to you that the inner human being remains unchanged. If it bears itself aright, the inner human being can still find a way to divine spiritual existence. For a certain period of time, however, the human understanding will be so constituted that it will have to be suppressed in order for the spiritual to be able to speak to the human soul. Therefore, remain in your mystic and pious mood. You have now received from me, all of you together, the picture, the imagination. What I have been able to give you is no more than an indication of what will come to fulfillment within you. You will go on further and find a continuation of what you have here experienced. Close quote. And now from the number gathered there together, three were chosen, to the end that they might establish a special union with the spiritual world, again, not at all through any kind of mediumistic powers, but through further development of the mystic, meditative, pious mood of soul. These three who were particularly guarded and protected by the rest of the circle, really closely and intimately cared for by them, experienced from time to time a kind of, quote, absence of mind, close quote. They were at such times in their external bodily nature wonderfully lovely and beautiful. Their countenances shone like the sun, and they wrote down in symbols revelations that they received from the spiritual world. These symbolic revelations were the first pictures that revealed to the Rosicrucians what it behooved them to know of the spiritual world. In the pictures was contained a kind of philosophy, a kind of theology, and also a kind of medicine. And the remarkable thing was that the others, it seems to me as though the others were four in number, so that the whole was a company of seven, after what they had experienced with their brothers, beholding how their eyes shone like the sun, and how their countenances were bright and radiant. These other four were able to give again in ordinary language what was in the symbols. The brothers whose destiny it was to bring the symbols down from the spiritual world could only write them down, could only say when they returned again to their ordinary consciousness, quote, We have been among the stars and among the spirits of the stars and have found the old teachers of the esoteric knowledge. Close quote. 
They could not themselves turn the symbolic pictures that they drew into ordinary human speech. The others could and did. And this is really the source of a great deal of the knowledge that passed over into such literature of theology as was philosophical in character, the theology not of the church but rather of the laity, and into the literature of medicine. And what had been thus received from the spiritual world in symbols was afterward communicated to small groups organized by the first Rosicrucians. Again and again, in the time from the 13th to the 15th centuries, the possibility arose in certain very small groups for experiences of this nature. Revelations came frequently to humans from the spiritual world in this or in other analogous ways in the 13th and 15th centuries. Those who had to translate what was revealed in pictures were not always capable of rendering it entirely faithfully, hence the want of clarity in much that has come down to us of the philosophy of this period. You have to discover for yourself what it really means by seeking for it again in the world of the Spirit. For those, however, who have been familiar with this kind of revelation that can be received from the spiritual world, there has always been the possibility to join together with such revelations. But picture to yourselves, my dear friends, what strange feelings must gradually have come over such people who had to receive the very highest knowledge, for what was given them was recognized as such, from a direction that was growing more and more foreign to them, indeed almost uncanny, for they could no longer see into the world out of which the secrets came. Ordinary consciousness could not reach that far. It will readily be understood that such things could all too easily lead to charlatanism and even to fraud. Indeed, at no time in human evolution have charlatanism and the highest and purest of revelations stood so close to one another as in this period. It is difficult to distinguish the genuine from the false, and this is what has led many to regard the whole of Rosicrucianism as charlatan. You can understand it, for true Rosicrucians are extraordinarily hard to find among the charlatans, and the matter is all the more difficult and problematic because you have continually to bear in mind that spiritual revelations come from sources which were very hidden in those days in their real quality and nature. The small circles gathered by the first Rosicrucians grew to a larger brotherhood, who went about unrecognized, appearing here and there in the world, generally with the calling of a physician healing the sick, and at the same time spreading knowledge as they went. And it was so that, in regard to very much of this knowledge, the spreading of it was not without a certain embarrassment, inasmuch as the people who carried it on were not able to say anything at all about the connection in which they stood regarding the spiritual world. But now, in this pursuit of spiritual research and spiritual knowledge, we can detect the development of something that is a very great beauty. There are, as we said, the three brethren and the four. The three are only able to attain their goal when the four work with them. The two groups are absolutely interdependent. The three received the revelations from the spiritual world, 
the four are able to translate the revelations into ordinary human language. What the three give would be nothing but utterly unintelligible pictures were the four not able to translate them. And again, the four would have nothing to translate if the three did not receive their revelations in picture form from the spiritual world. This interdependence gave rise to the development within such communities of an inner brotherhood of soul, a brotherhood in knowledge and in spiritual life, which in those days was held in some circles to be among the very highest of human achievements. Such small groups of people did indeed learn to know the true worth of brotherhood and gradually became more and more to feel how in the evolution of humanity toward freedom the bond between humans and gods would be completely severed were it not kept whole by this kind of brotherhood where the one looks to the other, where the one is in very truth dependent on the other. We have before us here a quality of soul that is wonderfully beautiful, and much that was written in those days possesses a charm that we only understand when we recognize how this atmosphere of brotherhood, which permeated the spiritual life of many circles in Europe in those times, has shed its radiant light into the writings. We have, however, also to see how a mood began gradually to pervade this whole striving for knowledge that made people anxious. Because they were unable themselves to approach the sources of spiritual revelation, it was, in the last resort, impossible to know whether these revelations were good or evil. And so, along with the recognition of what was good in them, anxiety began to be felt in regard to some of the influences. This anxiety then spread over large circles of people who came in time to have fear, intense fear of all knowledge. The gradual development of the mood of which I speak may be particularly well studied in two men. One is Raymond of Sabunda, who lived in the 15th century. He was born about 1430. Raymond of Sabunda was a remarkable man. If you study carefully what remains to us of his thought, you have the feeling this is surely almost the very same revelation that was communicated in full consciousness about the year 1200 by the teacher who took his pupils to the mountain tops and to the deep clefts of the earth. In Raymond of Sabunda, however, who belongs, as we saw, to the 15th century, it is all given in a more vague, impersonal style, philosophical in character, also theological and medical. This is due to the fact that Raymond of Sabunda received his revelations by way of the genuine Rosicrucians, that is to say by the path that had been opened by the great initiates of the twelfth century, whose work and influence I described to you yesterday, and who continue to inspire individuals from out of the spiritual world in all that I have been relating to you today. For the revelation that came through Rosicrucianism can be traced originally to this great initiate and to those who were with him in the spiritual world. He set the mood and feeling of the whole teaching. By now, as I said, a certain anxiety regarding the teaching was beginning to take hold of such spirits. 
Raymond of Sabunda, however, was a bold, brave spirit. He was one of those who were able to value ideas, who understand how to live in ideas. And so, although we notice in him a certain vagueness due to the fact that the revelations have their source, after all, in the spiritual world, yet in him we find as yet no trace of anxiety or fear in regard to knowledge. All the more striking, therefore, is another and very characteristic example of that spiritual stream, Pico della Mirandola, who also belongs to the 15th century. Pico della Mirandola, who lived only a short while, is a remarkable figure. If you make an intensive study of the fruits of his thought and contemplation, you see how the same initiative I have just described is everywhere active in them, a continuation, namely, of the wisdom of that old initiate by way of the Rosicrucian stream. But in Pico della Mirandola you will observe a kind of shrinking back before knowledge. Let me give an instance. He makes, for example, the following declaration. Everything that happens on earth, stones and rocks, coming into being, plants living and growing and bearing fruit, animals living out their life, all this cannot be attributed to the forces of the earth. If anyone were to think, there is earth and it is the forces of earth that produce what is on the earth, they would have quite a wrong notion of the matter. See Plate 5. The true view, according to Pico della Mirandola, is that up above are the stars, and what happens on earth is dependent on the stars. We must look up to the heavens if we want to understand what happens on earth. Speaking in the sense of Pico della Mirandola, we would have to say, You give me your hand, my brother or sister, but it is not just your feeling alone that is the cause of your proffering your hand. It is the star standing over you that gives you the impulse to hold out your hand. Ultimately, everything that comes about has its source in the heavens, in the cosmos. What happens on earth is but the reflection of the same. Pico della Mirandola gives expression to this as his firm conviction, and yet at the same time he says, But it is not our place to look up to these causes and the stars. We have to take account only of the immediate cause on earth. From this point of view, Pico della Mirandola combats the astrology that he finds prevalent, and that is the most significant fact. He knows well that the old and genuine astrology expresses itself in our destinies. He knows that. It is for him a truth. And yet he says, we should not pursue astrology. We should look only for the immediate causes, for the causes nearest at hand. Note well what it is that we have before us here. For the first time we are confronted with the idea of boundaries to knowledge. The idea shows itself, however, in a singular manner. It is still, let me say, quite human in character. Later, in Kant or in Dubois Raymond, you will be expressly told, quote, We cannot cross the boundaries of knowledge. Close quote. With them, that is a fact, resting on an inner necessity. Not so with Pico della Mirandola in the 15th century. He says, quote, What is on earth has undoubtedly come about through cosmic causes. But we are called upon to forego the attainment of a knowledge of these cosmic causes. We have to limit ourselves to the earth. Close quote. 
as we have in the 15th century, in such a markedly characteristic person as Pico della Mirandola, voluntary renunciation of the highest knowledge. My dear friends, we have here reached an event in human history that is of the greatest imaginable importance. Humanity is making the resolve to renounce knowledge. And it is actually so that what comes to pass externally in such a person as Pico della Mirandola also has its counterpart in the spiritual. It was again in one of those simple gatherings of Rosicrucians that on the occasion of a ritual arranged for the purpose, it was the latter half of the fifteenth century, human knowledge of the stars was in a deeply solemn manner offered up. What took place in that ritual? a ritual enacted with all the reverence proper to such a solemn occasion, may be expressed as follows. Individuals stood before a kind of altar and said, quote, We resolve to feel ourselves responsible at this moment, not only for ourselves and our community or our nation, nor even only for the people of our time. We resolve to feel ourselves responsible for everyone who has ever lived on earth we resolve that we will feel ourselves as belonging to the whole of humanity. And we feel that what was has really happened with the human being is that he has deserted the rank of the fourth hierarchy and has descended too deeply into matter. Close quote. Parenthesis, for the fall was understood in this sense. Close parenthesis. Continue quote. And in order that humanity may be able to return to the rank of the fourth hierarchy, may be able to find for ourselves of our own free will what in earlier times gods have tried to find for us and with us. Now let the higher knowledge be offered up for a season. And certain beings of the spiritual world, who are not of humankind, who do not come to earth in human incarnation, accepted the sacrifice in order to fulfill therewith certain purposes in the spiritual world. It would take us too far to speak of these here. We will do so in another time. But thereby the impulse for freedom was made possible for humanity. This possibility was granted us by the spiritual world. I am telling you about this ritual in order to show you how everything that takes place in the external life of the physical senses has its spiritual counterpart. We only have to look for it in the right place. For it can happen that such a ritual, enacted, I will not say in this instance with full knowledge, but enacted by persons who stand in connection with the spiritual world, has very deep meaning. From it can radiate impulses for a whole culture, for a whole stream of civilization. For it is a fact that if we want to come to a clear knowledge of the fundamental coloring and tone of a particular epoch of history, we must look for its source in the spirit. From the spirit spring the forces that stream through that epoch of time. Whatever in the years that followed showed itself to be of a truly spiritual nature was a kind of echo sounding on of this creative working from out of unknown spiritual worlds side by side with the external materialism that developed in the succeeding centuries, we can always find, here and there, individuals who are living under the influence 
of that renunciation of higher knowledge. I should like to give you a brief description of a type of human being that might be met from the 15th century onward, right through the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. You might find him in some village, gathering herbs for an apothecary or engaged in some other simple calling. If you take an interest in special forms and manifestations of humanity as it shows itself in this or that individuality, then you may meet with such a person. At first you will find them very reserved. They will speak but little. Perhaps you will even turn away your attention from what you are trying to find in them by talking in a trivial manner on purpose to make you think it is not worthwhile to strike up a conversation with them. If, however, you know better than to look merely at the content of what someone says, if you know how to listen to the sound of their words, if you can hearken to the way the words come out of them, you will go on listening, despite all discouragement. And if then, out of some karmic connection, they receive the impression that they really should talk to you, they will begin to do so, carefully and guardedly. And you will make the discovery that you have before you someone possessed of great wisdom. But what they are telling is not earthly wisdom. Neither is there contained in it much of what we now call spiritual science. It is warm words of the heart that they are uttering far-reaching ethical teachings, not that there is anything sentimental about their way of uttering them. They express themselves rather in proverbs, in short pithy sayings. He might say something like this, quote, Let us go over to yonder fir tree. My soul can creep into the needles and cones, for my soul is everywhere. And when my soul creeps into the cones and needles of the fir tree, it sees through them. My soul looks out through them into the deep distances of worlds beyond, and then I become one with the whole world. That is true piety, to become one with the whole world. Where is God? God is in every fir cone. And if we do not recognize God in every fir cone, if we look for God somewhere else than in every fir cone, we do not know the true God. I want only to give you a kind of picture of how such people spoke, people such as you might meet with in the way I have described. And then they might go on to say more. Quote, yes, and when you creep into the cones and needles of the fir tree, you find how God rejoices over the human beings in the world. And when you descend deep down into your own heart, into the abysses of the innermost of human nature, there also you find God. But then you learn to know how He is made sad through the sinfulness of humans. In such a way did the simple sages speak. A great number of them possessed what might be described in modern language as quote, new additions of the geometrical figures of the old Rosicrucians. These they would show to persons who approached them in the right way. When, however, they spoke about these figures, which were very unpretentious and even badly drawn, then the conversation would unfold in a strange manner. There were in those days many who felt interested in the unpretentious sage before them, but were at the same time 
overcome with curiosity as to what the strange Rosicrucian pictures really meant, and they would ask questions about them. But they received from these sages, who were as a rule regarded as rather strange and eccentric, no clear or exact answer. They would receive only the advice, if you study these figures with the right deepening of soul as through a window, then one can see into the spiritual world. The sages might give, as it were, a description of what they themselves have been able to feel from contemplating the figures, but they were not ready to offer any explanation or interpretation of them. And often it was so, that when you had heard these expressions of feeling in connection with the figures, you could not put them into thought at all, for it was not thoughts that these simple sages gave. What they gave had, however, an after-effect that was of immense significance. You would come away not only with warmth in your soul, but with the feeling, I have received a knowledge that lives in me, a knowledge I cannot possibly bring into intellectual concepts. This, then, was one of the ways, I have also described others to you, in which during the period from the 14th and 15th centuries right down to the 18th, the knowledge of the nature of humanity and of the nature of the divine was communicated to wide circles of people through the medium, as it were, of feeling. We cannot quite say without words, but we can say without ideas, although not on that account without content. In this period it was actually so that much intercourse went on among individuals by means of a silencing of thought. No one can arrive at a true conception of the character of this period who does not know how much was brought to pass in those days through the silencing of thought when individuals interchanged not mere words but their very souls. I have given you, my dear friends, a picture of one of the features of that time of transition when freedom was first beginning to flourish. I will have more to say on this from many aspects, for I want in these lectures to add something further to what was given at the Christmas conference. The end of Lecture 3